and welcome back to Grace Talks, a Christian's women's podcast that studies the Bible, the women in it, and applies it to our lives today. I hope you've been enjoying the current series on Esther. For this episode, we're going to be starting the eighth chapter. There's only one more episode after this one and two more chapters in total. Um, And then it's going to be time to move on to some new topics, new women of the Bible, and the revival of Ruth Talks. Also, I'm feeling a Christmas episode for December, so we'll see. Um, But for now, we have Esther's story to continue. This will be the second to last shout out to Beth Moore for her Bible study of Esther when it helped me to study Esther the first time. To recap where we left off last week or two weeks ago, in summary, our big bad villain fell from his high horse onto a seven-story tall pole he himself had constructed from Mordecai, Esther's cousin. But here's the issue. Haman's plan was still in effect, so... While Esther's banquets and her words were successful, there's going to be more that needs to be done to actually save the Jews, to save her people. So without waiting any longer, let's go ahead and open up our Bibles and dive on in. We're going to go ahead and start with chapter 8, verses 1 through 6. It reads, That same day King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came into the presence of the king, for Esther had told how he was related to her. The king took off his signet ring, which he had reclaimed from Haman and presented it to Mordecai. And Esther appointed him over Haman's estate. Esther again pleaded with the king, falling at his feet and weeping. She begged him to put an end to the evil plan of Haman the Agagite, which he had devised against the Jews. Then the king extended the gold scepter to Esther and she arose and stood before him. If it pleases the king, she said, and if he regards me with favor and thinks it the right thing to do, And if he is pleased with me, let an order be written overruling the dispatches that Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, devised and wrote to destroy the Jews in all the king's provinces. For how can I bear to see disaster fall on my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my family? King Xerxes clearly continues to favor Esther and her cousin. He gives all that was Haman's to her. Mordecai is given the king's signet ring. And then Esther makes Mordecai in charge of Haman's estate. It's a huge shift in the power structure, to say the least. It almost sounds like the perfect happy ending is already here, but Esther couldn't celebrate yet. Yeah, Haman was dead, but in a matter of months, so were the rest of the Jews, unless something was done. Because remember, the edict was created in a way so that it could not be repealed. That was the whole point of of an unrepealable edict, is you can't take it back. So two things to notice in Esther's most recent plea. In chapter 5, verse 2, Esther is standing in the king's courts, and the king asks for her request. In chapter 5, verse 6, at her first banquet, Esther waits until asked by the king for her request. In chapter 7, verse 2, yet again, Esther waits for the king to ask her what she wants at that second banquet. But here, she falls at his feet and begs for him to end Haman's evil plans. Here, she's finally putting into action what Mordecai told her to do in chapter 4, verse 8 to go into the king's presence, to beg for mercy, and plead with him for her people. So she's using the appropriate timing to obey her father figure in her life, her cousin Mordecai, and she's using his advice for that advantage. The second thing of note is how Esther phrases her request to the king. Esther does not ask the king to repeal his law or an unrepealable edict. She asks him to overrule Haman's dispatches. Dispatches are just letters. 
And in doing this, she's presenting this edict as something that the enemy created, just like a letter, um, and is delegitimizing it. And then in Esther 8, 7 through 8, we read the king's response. King Xerxes replied to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, because Haman attacked the Jews, I have given his estate to Esther, and they've impaled him on the pole he set up. Now, write another decree in the king's name in behalf of the Jews, as seems best to you and seal it with the king's signet ring, for no document written in the king's name and sealed with his ring can be revoked. So Xerxes isn't exactly out here saving the day, but he does open the door for Esther and Mordecai to do so. He's basically saying, hey, I already killed the bad guy, but if you guys want to go ahead and draft up something for this, feel free to send it out with my signature on it, which is what his signet ring was. It's basically a signature. It's the same ring he gave to Mordecai in the beginning of this chapter, and the same ring that used to be on Haman's finger. So King Xerxes doesn't agree with Esther that this edict was just a letter drafted up by the enemy. But I mean, it'd be embarrassing for his kingship to revoke an act that he had previously signed. Um, But at least he gives them the green light to get to do something. So putting this into our context, can you think of a time that you wanted someone to step up and be a hero? either in a small moment or in one of the big problems facing our world. Well, I have two steps in a new direction to shift your perspective real quick. Um, Number one, Jesus is our big hero. He saved our lives and souls the day he walked out of that tomb. He left and he's coming again and he's left behind his spirit as our helper and companion to guide us and strengthen us to become heroes ourselves. Just like Esther and Mordecai were being the hands and feet of God's action plan to save their people thousands of years ago, you can be the person who makes a difference now. In case you missed it, that that was step number two. (laughs) Instead of looking out at the world and wondering why God isn't changing things, ask yourself why you aren't. God gave us his word. He told us how to live out a life that takes care of the oppressed and the needy, that satisfies people, that gives everyone a purpose and provides endurance through what we can avoid. He told us to go out into the world and tell others the good news and that there's a victory in Jesus Christ. We can pray for changes to be made, yeah, but we can also be the change makers, the world shakers, the hands and mouthpieces of God. We have that authority, the same way that Esther and Mordecai now had the authority to pass a new law. Continuing on in chapter 8, verses 9 through 13, it says, At once the royal secretaries were summoned. On the 23rd day of the third month, the month of Sivan, they wrote out all Mordecai's orders to the Jews and to the satraps, governors, and nobles of the 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. These orders were written in the script of each province and the language of each people, and also the Jews in their own script and language. Mordecai wrote in the name of King Xerxes, sealed the dispatches with the king's signet ring, and sent them by mounted couriers who rode fast horses, especially bred for the king. The king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect themselves, to destroy, kill, and annihilate the armed men of any nationality or province who might attack them and their women and children, and to plunder the properties of their enemies. The day appointed for the Jews to do this in all the provinces of King Xerxes was the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so that the Jews would be ready on that day to avenge themselves on their enemies. Haman's edict had ordered for the destruction, death, and annihilation 
of all the Jews, young and old, women and children, on the 13th day of the 12th month and to plunder the Jews' goods. So what does this new edict allow the Jews to do? It allowed the Jews to assemble and protect themselves. It allowed them to defend themselves on the same day that Haman's edict allowed them to be attacked. Now, the real question is, why was there so much urgency to get this law out with fast horses if there were still months until the massacre? It only took three months in between Haman and Esther's edicts being sent out. But the Persian Empire was so vast that it took three months for a message to reach its borders. So the Jews needed as much time as possible to prepare. They were not warriors at this time in history, and they would need those five-ish months to prepare themselves. Plus, these people are living in terror right now at an impending genocide. Of course, they should be given news of hope as soon as possible. The next couple of verses show us the response to this new edict. Esther chapter 8 verses 14 through 15 reads, The couriers riding the royal horses went out spurred on by the king's command and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. When Mordecai left the king's presence, he was wearing royal garments of blue and white, a large crown of gold, and a purple robe of fine linen. And the city of Susa held a joyous celebration. So reminder, Susa is the capital. That's where Esther and all of them are at. So it's that local area celebrating because obviously they get to know the news right away. So the new edict was being sent out. Everyone's celebrating. And Mordecai, the guy who could have been a dead man, right, is dressed in royal garments and a crown, finally recognized for his role in saving the king's life literally like years ago and for his fatherly relationship with Queen Esther. Three months prior, he was dressed in rags and ashes, mourning the impending doom of his people. Now everyone in the city would look upon him and know he was changed. He had a new identity associated with those garments. And it reminds me of symbolism that we see in other parts of the Bible. For instance, in Exodus chapter 28, verses 2 through 5, it reads, Make sacred garments for your brother Aaron to give him dignity and honor. Tell all the skilled workers to whom I have given wisdom in such matters that they are to make garments for Aaron for his consecration so he may serve me as a priest. These are the garments they are to make. A breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a woven tunic, a turban, and a sash. They are to make these sacred garments for your brother Aaron and his sons so they may serve me as priests. So for context, Exodus is the second book of the Bible. And it's the book where we begin to see the formation of Jewish customs and of God's laws. The Lord wanted Aaron and Aaron's sons to be his priests and to wear garments that reflected what they were to him. So those garments were for priests, right? Then in 1 Peter chapter 2, it tells us that we are to be like living stones built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, which is just a fancy way of saying that we all, as individuals, make up the house of God's like bricks building up something, right? We're each carriers of God's word and temples to his spirit, making us priests. And I know that you probably hear that and think that maybe that doesn't apply to you. But if you're a child of God, you're not just an heir to his kingdom or just just a child, but you're a part of a holy priesthood. And this is possible because Jesus clothes us in righteousness. So some verses to help you visualize this. Isaiah 64, 6 says, all of us have become like one who is unclean and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. Okay, Zechariah 3, 4 says, the angel said to those who were standing before him, 
take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, see, I have taken away your sin and I will put fine garments on you. Isaiah 61 10, I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness as a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest and a bride adorns herself with her jewels. What identity we put on symbolizes to other people who we belong to. So if you're saved, but walking around in spiritual rags because you refuse to cast off shame or pride or whatever is holding you back, other people can't tell who you belong to. If you struggle with feeling like you deserve saving, let's not even worry about that because (laughs) you don't. I don't. No one does. I'll say it again. There's no such thing as a perfect Christian. Otherwise, there would have been no point in Jesus coming down to earth in the first place. Jesus paid the price, and trust me, no one has a debt that his life does not cover the cost for. So now is that moment, if you haven't already, to cast off your rags and shake the ashes from your head. What differences has Jesus made in your life that, like royal garments, are signs of your new identity? What differences will you allow him to make this week so that people look at you and like Mordecai, they see a new person, one with authority of the king, called for a purpose and loved as high as the heavens are above the earth. And I didn't poetically pull that from my own brain. That's from Psalms uh, 103.11. Okay. If you fear God, you are loved as high as the heavens are above the earth. So wear the royal robes. Okay, so now we're going to go ahead and close up chapter eight. So uh, chapter eight, verses 15 through 17 reads, when Mordecai left the king's presence, he was wearing royal garments of blue and white, a large crown of gold, and a purple robe of fine linen. And the city of Susa held a joyous celebration. For the Jews, it was a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honor. In every province and in every city to which the edict of the king came, there was a joy and gladness among the Jews with feasting and celebrating. And many people of other nationalities became Jews because fear of the Jews had seized them. Something I love to mention about the translation in this section is the Hebrew word translated as happiness in verse 16. That word also means lightness. For example, it's used in Psalm 139 verse 12 to say, Even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day for darkness is as light to you. That's the kind, that's, that's kind of just a fun aside. It just reminds me how this story is not over. You know, there's still a dark day coming when the Jews will have to protect themselves, but they have a lightness to them, a reason to celebrate because they get to protect themselves and prepare for that day. So more on track to what we're really studying and talking about right now, we can compare the four responses of the Jews to Haman's edict in chapter four, verse three, and then the six responses to this new one. In Esther chapter four, verse four, it says, in every province to which the edict and the order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. So that means that where the Jews used to be mourning, they're now celebrating. Where there used to be fasting, they're now feasting. Where there used to be weeping and wailing, there is now happiness and joy, gladness and honor. Wherever there is an intervention staged by God, there's always a before and an after. Can you come up with any words that describe your before and after when God caused interventions in your life? Maybe you can, maybe you can't. Either way, write down a couple reversals you desire God to bring. Then you can look back and see how he molded you into a new being with a new identity in the future. 
but you'll want to be serious when you ask. I've asked God for some character development of my own in the past, and the process is rarely comfortable, but there's something about the peace that comes from landing on the other side of transformation. There's always something for me to work on, to pray to God about, but there is deliverance from old habits, old sins, and old attitudes if you're ready for it. Sometimes even when you're not ready for it. My last point is, what kind of impact was made on others in verse 17? It says, many people of other nationalities became Jews because fear of the Jews had seized them. What does that even mean? Did people join the Jewish faith because they thought Jews were going to attack them? No. The edict only allowed Jews to protect themselves, not to attack others without cause. This fear then is similar to the response mentioned in Jeremiah 33, 9, uh, when it said, then the city will bring me renown, joy and praise and honor before all nations on earth that hear of the good things I do for it. And they will be in awe and will tremble at the abundant prosperity and peace I provide for it. People were in awe and trembled at how God took care of his people. So they wanted to be a part of the nation that followed that kind of God. That's what it means by they feared the Jews and became Jews themselves. Matthew chapter five, verses 14 through 16 says, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your father in heaven. A city on a hill is not meant to be hidden. When you allow God to be glorified in your own life, others see that light and they want to know how they can access that light too. We live in a world that needs light, a lot of it. So be the change, wear the royal garments, shine your light, and thank God for every before and after he performs in your life and the lives of those you touch. Today is a good day to start over and identify with the one who created you, died for you, and lives within you. That's everything that I have for today. Don't forget to review the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Give a follow on the Grace Talks podcast, Instagram, Twitter. Uh, maybe share the link to your favorite episode with someone that you know. Check out the YouTube channel, subscribe, etc. Every time you engage with Grace Talks content, you increase the reach that Grace Talks makes. So I hope that you join in the next time as we finish up talking about Esther. And as usual, if you have any questions about today's episode, the Bible, or anything else, I would be happy to answer it as best as I can. And if you haven't heard it today, God loves you. I love you. You are important. You have worth and you have a purpose. I'm signing off. Bye.